Uh, we'll be in Mark 12 if you need a, a good, good stopping place um, so I don't make some people too anxious. Have to know where we're going. But uh, before we get into the text, I was, I was thinking about this this past week and, and really trying to relate with it and, and think about a story from my own life when uh, I think I experienced some of what's going on. And it brought my mind back to um, high school. And I'm sure we all have very vivid memories of things that happened in high school. But uh, one for me was a, uh, a pretty important time in my life. It was really a, a substantial change, I think, uh, when I found out that you could buy hot fries in bulk. And if you don't know what hot fries are, they're, uh, they come in little cellophane packages like any other chips. But they're not chips, they're fries. And uh, they have the consistency of styrofoam. Uh, no nutritional value whatsoever, uh, quite the opposite probably, but uh, they're tasty nonetheless, and uh, I love them. And it wasn't until high school I, I found out when I went to Sam's one day that you could buy them in bulk, and, uh, and I did that indeed. I, fought, I bought my first box of them, and then I, uh, there's like 52 a, a box for like 10 bucks back then or something, um, but I, I was delighted. I had so many hot fries. I had like five or six in one day, five little bags. And, um, and, and that really sent me on a, a progression where I started to buy boxes and boxes of hot fries with no shame whatsoever. And uh, typically in high school uh, for, I don't know how long it was, maybe six months uh, until I burned out on them. But I would go everywhere with bags of hot fries. And uh, if, if you went anywhere, you would see me probably eating some hot fries, but then I'd have a satchel, because you have a satchel in high school, and at least I did, and uh, I was homeschooled, so that's fine. Uh, but uh, I'd have them stuffed with hot fries, so I'd have hot fries to share with everybody. So I knew if I was going somewhere, I'd grab extra few bags and put them in my satchel, and then I could kind of dispense them out to my closest friends or people who I thought I'd be merciful towards. And... Uh, so I had hot fries all the time, and it wasn't um, till later that I realized hot fries are not actually the most wealthy thing you can buy. Um, but for me, I was filthy rich in hot fries, and I loved it. And uh, as you know, time went on, um, I would kind of deplenish my store of hot fries, and I thought I was generous. I really did. I, I would go out and be like, "You don't understand. Like I have. You don't know where I get these. Okay, this this place. Nobody else can go." But I have them, and I'll give them to you. And I thought I was really generous, but really I wasn't generous. Um, I was just carefree and because I had so many. And I, I mean, at, at one point I remember having so many that I was got in a car to drive off somewhere, and I saw uh, something fly off the windshield, and I thought it was a bird at first. But then after thinking about it, I realized it was a bag of hot fries I had left on the windshield uh, and then was somewhere down the road. So they were everywhere. And uh, it wasn't until I actually got down to just one or two bags that I realized I wasn't generous because I had, a, I had to really stretch it out. I had to ration how many I had until I could get my next box. And um, so I learned that even though I thought I was generous, I really wasn't. I was just carefree because of the amount, the wealth that I had. And... Uh, I tell you that because that's kind of where we are in the Gospel of Mark. Not there, there are hot fries in Mark, but uh, it does talk a lot about wealth. And I'd just like to give you a brief overview of 
how Mark has talked about money or wealth so far, only going back to chapter 10. So in Mark 10, 25, Jesus will have uh, the rich young ruler or young man come up to him who's extremely wealthy, and he asks Jesus what he can do to follow him. Jesus says, keep the commandments. He says, I've done all that. I'm fine. He says, then sell everything you have and give to the poor. And he can't do it. Money is preventing him. His wealth is preventing him from following Jesus. In Mark 11, Jesus comes into the temple scene like we saw, this massive complex where all sorts of social injustice going on. Money changing is happening. That is not right. Uh, People are being cheated out of their money to worship God. And Jesus will shut it down. He stops all the robbery that's going on. And after that, in Mark 12, uh, Jesus gives a parable where tenants are taking care of some property, and then uh, the landowner wants his share of it. And they say, no, we're, we, don't, we don't want to give you anything. This is ours now. Uh, and they don't give the owner anything. Or even later in Mark 12, 17, Jesus is confronted by the Pharisees and the Herodians in a, a, a debate about who to give taxes to. And Jesus says, give them to both. Give them to God if they're gods and, ta- and Caesar if it's Caesar. So Mark has in mind a real issue here when it comes to wealth, when it comes to money. A serious issue. And Jesus has been kind of taking it out piece by piece. But here today, we're going to see that he really addresses the, the, the problem behind the problem of wealth, and he'll talk about wealth. And uh, there's a main point for today that we're going to kind of see through the passage, and it's this, that regardless of your income, you can be wealthy. Regardless of your income, you can be wealthy. And if that sounds like it doesn't make sense, you have to listen to the end of the sermon to know what the answer is. So that's your incentive. Uh, But there are really three points, and we'll, we'll walk through them together. Uh, The first is the problem of wealth that we're going to look at. And the second is the paradox of wealth. And the third is the promise of wealth. So the problem of wealth, paradox of wealth, and the promise of wealth. Let's start reading in Mark 12, 38. And in his teaching, this is what Pastor Casey closed with last time. He said, beware of the scribes. Jesus is talking. Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and, and like greetings in the marketplaces and have the best seats in the synagogues and the palaces, at the places of honor at feasts, who devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers, they will receive the greater condemnation. So Jesus is talking about people who are exceedingly wealthy. And then he'll, he'll what he's really saying is there's a problem with this. And the problem is these people, the scribes, you can see, they had a number of behaviors. One would be that they walk around in long robes. So they like to, with their money, buy the most expensive and the most fashionable clothing possible. They go somewhere. They can't just go somewhere. They have to have somebody move some stuff so that their their robes don't get messed up or they have enough room to sit down. It It is a public display. They like greetings in the marketplaces. They like to go places and people know that they're rich. They're wealthy, very wealthy. But they don't want to keep that to themselves. They want everybody else to know about it. So when they go in the marketplace, everybody says, oh, they're the scribes. They're so wealthy. 
Maybe they'll come buy my stuff. Or they also like to have the best seats in the synagogues in honor of feasts. When they enter a social setting, a relaxed social setting, a mealtime, everybody knows who these people are. And they like that. They like that people know them and give them honor. And will give them big portions of food or attention or whatever it is. But at the same time, Jesus says they devour widows' houses. They make long prayers for pretense. Now, what is this problem of wealth going on? There are really two things in relation to the widows that are mentioned. Because Jesus, he could have said many things, right? He, if they're really cheating out tons of people, he could have said a lot of different things about people that would be affected by this behavior. But he doesn't. He only says widows. And how would they devour widows' houses? Well, there are really two ways. One is that they would confiscate their land. And the second would be that they'd consume all their resources. So confiscating their land, what, what would that look like? Um, if you have a man who's married to a wife and he dies, leaving the wife a widow, now the widow would be distraught and certainly distraught and vulnerable, very vulnerable, more so in this culture than in our culture in a lot of ways. Uh, in a patriarchal culture and society, uh, the widow didn't have the ability to go out and, and work and make a living for herself, anything like we have today. Um, if a woman became a widow, that basically meant she was destitute for the rest of her life. She only had to survive off the, the benefit of others and uh, benevolence of others. And, and if she had land... She undoubtedly couldn't work it because this is a patriarchal society, so she can't work the land. So what are her options that are left here? She can sell the land. But if she sells the land, she only gets a little bit of the proceeds from the land, and so she's left poor. And in this situation, with no husband around to protect her, what's going to happen in this society? She's going to have to go to somebody of authority, somebody for guidance, somebody for help, somebody that knows the law, somebody that knows the system and can help her out, and that's going to be a scribe. So she goes to a scribe. The scribe also is the same person that knows all the litigation and does all the litigation. So he's going to know, okay, well, you have this land over here. Well, it's worth this much, but I mean, really, you know... It's not that worth that much. And maybe it was before when your husband was alive, but now it's not worth anything. So, uh, so you should probably sell it. Scribes also were people to buy the land. So you start to see how this system is so crooked. Um, so widow goes to a scribe. He ends up buying the land from her. Now she gets a very meager portion and lives the rest of her life destitute. Not only that, her family. If there's nobody to work the land... She's consigning herself and all of her lineage to poverty. This is an incredibly large issue. Not only that, the first way is confiscating the land, but also consuming all the resources. There's a provision in the Old Testament that God gave for his people. In Leviticus 23, when he talks about um, how his people should care for one another. And he says this in verse 22, And when you reap the harvest... Of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to the edge, nor shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The situation in Israel was this. They had no welfare. 
Okay, no social security. They didn't have medical complexes that you can go to and get immediate aid, even if you don't have the money. They didn't have the whole credit card system that we have. So really, your options, if you didn't have money, were to go to somebody else's field and pick up the leftovers. And God said to his people, the way that my society should work is that when you own a field, you don't reap all of it. You leave the edges and the gleanings. Gleanings are what's left over uh, after you go through and pick up all the, the grain. So there would be two very clear ways that poor people, widows especially, can make a living for themselves. And this also was a way that the scribes were cheating out the widows. They wouldn't do it. They'd reap the whole land, 100% of it, leave nothing behind. So the widow here, is having her house devoured by the scribe. Not just the scribe, by, by the wealthy people. Because how do you get wealthy? You reap 100%. You're wise, you steward. But at the same time, you push and push and push and get more than you need. In this context, that is the position, that is the seat of the scribe's because they didn't reap, the widows didn't reap the whole land, the widow could get enough food to survive. It was a meager life. This is also, just to make a connection for you, why Boaz is a righteous man in the Old Testament. Because he lets the poor onto his land and he doesn't reap all of it. This means, this is really important for us, it means that the widow is not simply poor because she's a widow. That's true, that's the case, she's going to be destitute, but... She's poor, not only because she's a widow, but because there are wealthy people in the culture who are disadvantaging her by collecting more than they need. That's what's going on. This is an issue of social justice, and God's very passionate about it. How is God passionate about it? Well, there are a number of places in the Old Testament. All through, it's a, it's a great exercise for you to read through the Old Testament and see how God cares for the poor in society, the orphan, the widow, the alien. And Exodus 22 is one of the places that we see this. Starting verse 21, God says, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them, they will cry out to me. I will surely hear their cry, and my wrath will burn, and I will kill you with a sword, and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. God takes this issue of the widow, of the poor of society, extremely close to heart. Why? Verse 25, if you lend money to anyone of my people who is poor, you shall be like a money lender. You shall not be like a money lender to him. You shall not exact interest from him. So if you give him money, you don't take any interest back from it. You give it freely. In verse 27, and if he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. The reason that God cares so much for the marginalized in society is because he's compassionate. He knows what their need is and he cares for them. Not only that, in Deuteronomy 10, uh, we'll say this, for the Lord your God is a God of gods, the Lord of hosts, the great, the mighty, the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow 
and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Deuteronomy 15, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. God knows this. God knows there will always be poor. Therefore, I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. And Psalm 146, moving out of the beginning of the Old Testament in through past the years, they still understand this truth. The Lord who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry, the Lord sets the prisoners free. He opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked, he brings to ruin. God cares immensely for the poor in the Old Testament. Not only the Old Testament, there's a lot in the New Testament as well. And I'll just give you one verse for that, probably one that's familiar to you. James 1.27, that orphans and widows, religion, True religion, true faith is this, if it's pure and undefiled, to care, to visit orphans, orphans and widows in their distresses and keep oneself unstained by the world. What is it to be a righteous person, a good person in God's eyes? It's taking care of the poor in society. That might not be a message that you hear so often, even though it seems intuitive. So as I was thinking about this, I was thinking, okay, well, here, here we have a system today in which we live where the poor can still be taken care of and have massive amounts of debt, or the rich, that matter, can have massive, massive amounts of debt. So what's the, um, what's the plumb line? How do you figure out whether somebody is poor or not? If they're, if they're poor in one place in society and they move in the country, they might be wealthy in the other. So, so how do you determine that? Well, for the widows, this would certainly be true, but I'll give you two ways of thinking about it. One is that those who are poor lack contextual necessities. They lack good education, decent jobs, reasonable housing, and adequate food. Somebody who's poor, you could say that is the way they live. Or, more simply, you could say that those who are poor are those without options and powerless. There's no way out for them. They don't have any other options. They don't have money to, to figure out a different solution. They don't have contacts. They're in a lower bracket of society. So what do they do? They, they're powerless. And as I was thinking about this, I say, okay, God, well, I, I see what you're saying about the poor, and I see your heart for it, but it doesn't necessarily go deep into me and impact my heart. And I, I found a quote that I'd like to share you that was really helpful from Arthur Simon. He's a uh, humanitarian that has done a massive amount to help people out day to day in their, in their food and living. And he said this, that poor people have God's special concern and deserve ours, not because they are better, but because, but people, not because they're better people, but simply because they are in distress. Those of us who are parents have an almost instinctive understanding of this. We love all our children but if one child gets sick, becomes physically or emotionally injured, or experiences some other great hurt, our hearts go out to that child. We pay special attention to him or her, not because we love the other children less, but because the child has special need. And that's, that's the way it is with God. God knows everything. 
And all of us, in one regard, are his children. And especially for the poor, he, he takes up their case and will defend them and take care of them. And this is the cry in the Old Testament of the poor, that God knows. He knows their plight. So what is this problem of wealth? The problem of wealth is that everybody wants to be on top. But there's only so many resources to go around. Not everyone can be exceedingly wealthy. The problem is the human heart. The problem of wealth is the problem of excessive human desires. As we see with the scribes, they would have been fine to just have some land. Even with all the lands that they had, they would have been fine to not reap the edges of it or leave the gleanings. But they weren't. They consumed 100% of the income that they got. I think this has a massive implication in application for us. When you budget and think about your finances, part of the application, I think, that God shows us here is that if you take all your money and you think about it as all yours and nobody else's, only to do what you want to with it, then you're like a scribe. You exhaust all the resources you have on yourself, for yourself. And this is not why God gives us money. It's not why he gives us wealth. He gives it to us partly to help those who need it. So the problem of wealth is really the human heart. But not only the problem of wealth, understanding the problem of wealth will help you to be wealthy regardless of your income. It's also the paradox of wealth. And that's what we see in the next verse in Mark, Mark 12, 41. Jesus sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. Many rich people came, put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. So Jesus, after he has this uh, interaction with all his enemies, he sits down. Of course Jesus sat down because he's sitting down in the temple like a king, because he is the king. He has just dispatched so many of his opponents who are exceedingly wealthy. The chief priests and the scribes, they come to him and the elders, and he gives them a parable of the tenants to say, you are like these wicked people. The Pharisees and Herodians come to him saying, who do we give taxes to? Jesus says, you give them to God and to Caesar. The Sadducees came to him to try to trip him up, offering the wanting proof of the resurrection. And he explains how there's proof of the resurrection. The scribes come to him wanting to know what the greatest commandment is. And Jesus tells them the perfect answer. And then Jesus issues a question to them about the son of David that they can't answer. Jesus sits down after dispatching his enemies and all of them are exceedingly wealthy. When Jesus sits down in Mark 41, 12, 41, he doesn't just sit down and take the day off. He sits down with his disciples, removed out of the, the center of the public eye, and now he's going to watch something happen. And as he watches, he will point out to his disciples that this is the key issue that's been going on for the last chapter and a half, even since Mark 10 with the issue of wealth. So he sits down and he sees two different groups of people or one group of people and one individual go to offer in money. Now, if you're going to offer money at the temple, 
you'd be at this massive, ornate complex uh, of the treasury, and it has 12 huge brass receptacles all the way around it uh, that make lots of noise. So if you want people to know that you're generous and you're, you're giving your money to God, then what you do is you bring the heaviest amount of money and the most amount of money that you can, and you chunk it into these brass containers, and it would make a deafening noise all the way around. And as that would happen, people would say, oh, they're so godly. Look how much they're giving. Well, they gave $12,000 worth. That's amazing. But here comes a poor widow, and she's exceedingly poor, and she puts in two small copper coins. Now, what we see uh, in Mark's language about this is there are many rich people putting in lots of money. So there's almost no end to this group of people that come and are super wealthy, and they put in money. It's almost unceasing. But then with a poor widow, she comes all by herself, no friends, and she has two small copper coins that she puts in. This tells us something about the widow. Uh, Number one is that she's poor. Mark didn't have to say poor. All widows are poor. But by saying that she's a poor widow, he's saying this is the opposite side of the spectrum. If you have the most wealthy individuals in the culture on one side, you have this woman on the other. You cannot find a woman who has less money in all of Israel than this woman. And what is the the money that she has? Two small copper coins. I won't belabor you with the, the research that I did, but I think it's safe to say those two coins would equate to about two to six dollars in our currency. So this is enough to buy food. She's poor, but how poor is she? She only has enough money left to buy one meal, probably her last meal. All her resources. She has no other earnings. She has no other assets. This is it. So she comes and puts in the two coins. And Jesus thinks this is amazing. So he hops up. Sounds like he hops up at least. In Mark 12... 43, he calls his disciples to him. So Jesus is watching all this take place after everything he said about money and the rich and what it means to really worship God. And I think he's probably wondering, did anybody listen? Has anybody heard? All my opponents, I just told them, it is not about your wealth. It is about your heart. And so he will stand up and say to his disciples, Come over here. I want you to see this. And he'll say, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing in the offering box. How is that possible? This is a paradox. A paradox is something, are are two different things that seem completely contradictory, but actually can coexist at the same time. It's a paradox. The woman, we certainly know, is putting in factually less than everybody else. Like in what universe does two cents equal more than $2,000? If you tried to use this method on somebody else, you would get laughed at. And I'm sure the disciples were extremely puzzled, uh, like normal, like, okay, well, Jesus probably just needs to go to the Mount of Olives again. Needs some nappy time, right? You don't understand what you're talking about. How can this small infinitesimal amounts amount to more than all the wealth have put in, the the wealthy people have put in. And it's because Jesus says 
in verse 44, they've all contributed out of their abundance, but she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had to live on. The reason the poor widow has put in more was because of what the money represented, faith. And we know this. We know that money cannot solve all your problems. When you have a loved one who's extremely sick and needing help, maybe money can, can help medically, but if the medical world cannot help, your money does no good. Zero. Or in terms of relationship, trying to get somebody to love you, just spending money on them all the time, that won't make anybody love you. There is value past money, but you can use money to represent value. And this is what happens with the woman. The rich gave out of their abundance. One translation would even say uh, superfluity. So you have a new word to put down. Uh, it is a real word. You can fact check me if you want. But it's superfluous. That all this money the rich are putting in doesn't cost them a dime in one sense. It doesn't cost anything to them. It doesn't bite into them. If it did, it wouldn't be superfluous. Everything that they're putting into this offering to God are things that they don't actually need. Not necessities. Maybe that day they couldn't have their extra hot, double cup, no foam, triple venti, half sweet, non-fat vanilla latte, right? It's not a need. It's not a necessity. It's something on top. And these people were just throwing all that in there. The poor widow, by contrast, gave out of her poverty. Her sacrifice to God cost her everything. Another translation, instead of out of her poverty, would be, say, out of her destitution, which really presents the enigma to you. How can she doesn't have anything? How can she give out of nothing? All she has left are these two coins. But Jesus says this is worth more than everything. And if there was anybody in Israel that you would say doesn't need to tithe, it would be this woman on the opposite side of the spectrum. In fact, a large portion of the, the money coming in was supposed to go to widows. And she's not getting anything in this system. But that doesn't mean she's unfaithful to God. She knew her only hope was that God would care for her. She believed that God saw her powerless state and cared. And I can imagine uh, many people today, even myself as I was thinking about it, wanting to step in and talk to Jesus and say, hold on, Jesus, you don't, I don't think you understand the situation here. If she gives both pennies, she's not being a good steward. I can hear that argument very well articulated today. Going to her and saying, okay, if, if you really want to get out of this situation, what you have to do is you give one penny and then you keep the rest for you so you can eat or maybe you can do something else and gain some interest off of it and then start to build your wealth. I think there is a fair amount of, of biblical instruction and wisdom to be had on one side in that conversation. But I, I want you to sit in the tension that Mark gives us here. That doesn't happen. Jesus doesn't say, only put in one. He says, she put in both, and it's wonderful. It's more than everybody else has put in. Jesus does not condemn her for giving everything. Jesus is not saying she's a poor steward 
for giving all of her resources away. There's more that could be said about that, but I think it's a healthy thing for us to sit in and say, maybe that does please God if you're ridiculously generous, even if it doesn't seem right to other people. The irony is that the poor widow in doing all of this is the one who's actually keeping the law. She's set in contrast, opposed to the scribes who know the law. They have, in most cases, memorized the first five books of the Bible. Memorized them. Any one of us would be doing great if we memorized a chapter out of one of them, right? They know all of it, and they don't understand it. They don't fulfill it. But this is what the the widow does, is she actually is the only one in this whole situation that is fulfilling the law. She's the only one who's giving out of her need. And, and this shows us that money is not God's currency. Faith is. He has all the money in the world. What can you give to God that God didn't give to you? If he's the creator, how in the world could you give him something back that he didn't first have? God owns everything. And this is Jesus' point with the scribes. They didn't put in anything with all their wealth because it, it didn't matter. They thought that they were just doing something to please God out of religious obligation. And that is not how God is pleased. This woman, however, does please God. And as I was thinking about this, uh, I was thinking, you know, paradoxes are funny things because uh, you can talk about them for a long time and try to outline them and make sense of them. But at the same time, sometimes you just need an illustration, a story to really get the point of the paradox. And, um, and this is one that came to mind for me. Uh, once upon a time, so now we're in Sunday school. Uh, once upon a time, there was a king who ruled the land, the whole land. And there was a gardener who, who grew a, a gigantic carrot biggest carrot he's ever had or ever will have. And he was a poor gardener, but nonetheless, he was a good servant. So he said, I have to take this to the king. So he takes it to the king and he comes before the king and says, great king, this is the greatest carrot I've ever grown or ever will grow. I want to give it to you as a token of my love and respect. And the king is moved by the gardener's display of affection. And he says, thank you. And as the gardener turns to leave, the king says, wait, because he discerns his heart and he knows that he gave it purely out of joy. And he says, you're a good steward of the earth. I want to give you a plot of land that you can garden and be faithful with. And the gardener was overjoyed and then he left happy and gardened the new plot of land. But at the same time, there was a uh, nobleman at court. And he saw everything that happened. And as he saw what happened, he saw the generosity of the king. And he thought, well, maybe if, if this is what the king does with a carrot, what's he going to do with something greater? So the next day he comes to court and he comes before the king and he says, great king, I breed horses and I bring before you now this black stallion, the greatest horse I have ever bred or ever will breed. And the king discerning the man's heart looks at him says, thank you, takes the horse and dismisses him. And then the nobleman gets very upset 
And the king asks him, why are you upset? And the nobleman says, because you didn't reward me like you did the gardener. And the king says, let me explain something to you. The gardener was giving me the carrot, but you're giving yourself the horse. The reason the gardener was rewarded was because he gave to the king out of pure delight. He knew the king was good and he loved him and he gave it simply out of admiration and respect and affection. Versus the nobleman who came with ulterior motives. He didn't give the horse. It was expensive. But he didn't give it to the king because he was really wanting to love the king. He gave it to him because he wanted the king to give him something more valuable. And Jesus is like that king. He knows the motives going on in the offerings. You see, when you're generous out of your abundance, you're not really being generous. You're really just carefree, like I was with the hot fries. You're really doing it for yourself. When you're generous out of your poverty, then you demonstrate that you really care. But how do you care so much? So we see the example of the scribes, and we see the example of the poor widow. And you, say, you may say, well, that's admirable. That's wonderful. But how do you get like that? How do you get to the place where you are willing to give everything away out of love? And I think the answer that we can see is in verse 44, even though it's a little bit hidden. And it's really going to be the promise of wealth. That as the story ends, we see Jesus saying that she put in everything she had to live on. And what you and I would expect then would be for some resolution to happen, right? But we don't get anything. We would, what we would expect is Jesus to come and say, you know what, poor widow, I know exactly what you did. I'm going to give you $3 million. So you don't have to worry about anything else in life. And he doesn't do that. Maybe that's what he did, but I don't think so. What Jesus could have done is what he just did with the fish, right? He could have said, what you need to do, poor widow, is go fishing in this location, and the, the fish that you catch will give you a denarius. It'll be, it'll be $200. He doesn't do that. Mark leaves the story off abruptly, and I think he does it because he's showing God has always cared for the widow. He, uh, he will always care for the widow, and it would not be the most caring thing to give her an enormous amount of money. If God did that, if he just took care of all of her earthly problems, if Jesus, Jesus just said, you don't have any other problems now, I'm going to take care of you for the rest of your life, it would not solve all of her problems. And it wouldn't solve all of her problems because... Our financial well-being is not the deepest problem that we have. We have a deeper problem. We have a more important need. And that's what Jesus, I think, is starting to get at. You see, Paul starts to talk about this in comparing how one church should give to another in 2 Corinthians. And he says this, 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know, you know the grace of the Lord. What is the grace of the Lord like? the Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through, so that you may, by his poverty, become rich. 
Jesus presents to the widow a better solution than just giving her money, just throwing money at the problem. Jesus knew the only way that we could become rich, the only way that this widow could really become rich was for her deeper need to be satisfied. And what was that like? Well, Jesus, in, uh, in Luke 2, when he comes, his parents come to the temple and they offer sacrifice. They, they offer a sacrifice that is the least, inex, the most inexpensive sacrifice possible. So you could offer lambs, goats, all sorts of things. But if you're super poor, you would offer two birds, either pigeons or turtle doves. And that's what Jesus's parents do. He's poor. Jesus is born into poverty. Not only that, in Luke 9, when Jesus is talking to someone, someone that wants to come follow him, he says, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. I don't have any money. Jesus was born into poverty. He lived in poverty. And this is remarkable. Can you think of somebody, the most wealthy person, giving everything away and living like the poorest person in society. This is what happen, happens with Jesus. Jesus in heaven had no need. He didn't need to experience poverty. He was rich, richer than you or I can even imagine. And he left it all. Like Paul says that Christ, though he was rich for your sake, became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich. On the cross, Jesus lost everything. Do you remember what happened while Jesus is crucified on the cross? One of the very last things that happens, the people take his clothes, right? The guards take his clothes, and then they're arguing about it. Well, should we rip it? Well, if we rip it, then you can have some, I can have some. But if we don't rip it, then we, it's not as valuable. Maybe we can't sell it or use it like it should be used. And Jesus is there naked in pain on the cross. Jesus lost everything. He lost everything of his possessions. He literally didn't have clothes at the end of his life. But not only that, he lost all of his relationship with the Father. He became the poorest person you can possibly imagine. Why? So that you and I, through his poverty, might become rich. The riches of heaven, the riches of his relationship with the Father, with his joy, with his everlasting, everlasting joy could be given to us. This is something that I, is really hard for me to learn and to drive down deep in my heart. So I'd like to, like to give you a, uh, a prayer from somebody that I read that, that helped me do this. It says, Lord, help me to glorify you. I am poor. Help me to glorify you by contentment. I am sick. Help me to give you honor by patience. I have talents. Help me to extol you by spending them for you. I have time, Lord. Help me to redeem it that I may serve you. I have a heart to feel, Lord. Let that heart feel no love but yours and glow with no flame but affection for you. I have Ahead to think, Lord, but help me. Help me to think of you and for you. You have put me in this world for something, Lord. Show me what it is. Help me to work out my life purpose. I cannot do much, but as the widow put in her two mites, which were all her living, 
So, Lord, I cast my time and eternity to you into your treasury. I am all yours. Take me and enable me to glorify you now. And all that I say and all that I do and all that I have. When you believe that Jesus gave everything for you to be rich is when you will be generous. You will be wealthy regardless of your income when you believe, when you see that Jesus spent his wealth so that you could be rich and he took on your poverty. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for Jesus coming and giving us his wealth. That though we were poor and despised, rejected, regardless of our income, regardless of how much we have, regardless of how many things we have, that we're still absolutely bankrupt before you. And Lord, this morning, would you help us to understand the glory that it is that you would give your son to pay for our debts, make us clean before you, and give us life everlasting. God, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.